Welcome to All Together Now. This is Eleanor Lacane. We have two guests with us today. First up is Harold Myerson, who will join us for a conversation about what really happened in the election last week, what's in the infrastructure bill that just passed, and how the Democrats can win next year. Following him will be Libby Roderick, the director of the Difficult Dialogues Initiative based at the University of Alaska, focused on civil discourse. First up is Harold Myerson, one of the nation's leading political analysts. He is editor-at-large of the American Prospect, one of the top political magazines in the country. He has also been a weekly op-ed columnist for the Washington Post and executive editor of the LA Weekly, the nation's largest metropolitan weekly. Harold Myerson, welcome back to All Together Now. Uh, very good to be here, Eleanor. Glad to be here. Yeah. Well, we had an exciting election last week. It feels like a long time ago, but it was just last week. What do you think happened there? Like, let's start. Why did the Democrats lose the governorship in Virginia, which had been so reliably blue lately? Yeah, well, uh, for, for a number of reasons. Um, and there are some reasons specific to Virginia. But given the fact that the Democrats uh, had a much closer call than anyone expected in New Jersey mm -hmm. and lost some other seats, too, in uh, local races around New York, uh, there's some national uh, things that are uh, that are troubling, but I, th I think the, the the quickest explanation is that Republican turnout was quite high and Democratic turnout was not quite so high. Um, uh, the Republicans were enthused uh, in, in a kind of traditional bloodthirsty mode uh, to uh, register their dislike, which is certainly. Uh, intensified by daily doses of Fox News and things like that. Uh, their dislike of uh, the government in Washington, which is controlled, if only by a hair in Congress, uh, by the Democrats, uh, and they registered that. Whereas the Democrats have been uh, fumfering around on their major legislation for the better part of the year, and were still fumfering when uh, voters went to the polls last week. Um, and, you know, the, so that the major image coming through of the Democrats was the party that couldn't deliver and Joe Biden being the president who couldn't deliver. That is not a great message uh, to be inadvertently conveying. Um, and in particular to your sometime voter supporters, who I think would respond quite well to the contents of the two major bills uh, that at that point had not passed. One of them now has passed. Uh, but uh, the bills were still in limbo uh, when voters went to the polls. Yeah, that's an excellent analysis. And I'm glad the Democrats finally did pass the infrastructure bill, which um, I want to talk about in a minute. But, you know, some people are saying the problem with the Democrats is that they're overreaching, that they're trying to do too much. And it was probably a good thing they didn't pass the bills because it was government overreach. And others are saying, like you just did, well, no, they had these two excellent bills, but they didn't pass either of them. So they look like they can't get anything done. What do you say to people who think that uh, they were just trying to do too much and it's too much government spending? 
Well, there are two critiques of the Democrats being too left. One focuses on cultural issues, which is what Republicans tend to raise because they have nothing remotely popular to say uh, in, when, on economic issues when you get down to the specifics. Uh, the, 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 the Democrats were at a disadvantage on uh, you know, some of the causes that they embrace and that they are said to embrace uh, by right-wing media. For instance, I don't think critical race theory would have become an issue had it not been hammered home as a threat to the nation every day on Fox News, um, uh, particularly as much as, you know, it is not taught at all in Virginia schools, yet this became a major issue in the Virginia governor's race. Um, but, you know, there, but there are some real uh, concerns on cultural issues, on wokeness, um, mm -hmm. And that those kinds of issues become the dominant issues in lots of voters' minds when the Democrats haven't really produced uh, what they essentially exist uh, that is a raison d'etre for their existence, which is, um, you know, concrete improvements to people's lives and, and uh, economic security. Um, the irony for all those who say, you know, that uh, the, the problem is both sides of this left uh, uh, spectrum, that it's, it's economic as well as cultural, is that almost every particular in the infrastructure bill and the Build Back Better bill, the other bill, which is yet to pass either house, so I suspect it'll pass the house next week, uh, almost every particular is very popular. Uh, if you look at paid sick leave, uh, which is in the House bill, and we don't know if it'll survive the right-wingers in the Democratic caucus in the Senate, it has an approval rating of about 80%. If you look at uh, child care uh, uh, subsidies, likewise. If you uh, uh, look, at, look at some of the other uh, provisions that actually uh, uh, are part of the bill, like reducing uh, what seniors have to pay out of pocket for drugs over the course of a year from $6,000 to $2,000, hugely popular. If you, if you look at some of the things Bernie Sanders has advocated, which are not presently in the bill, that is to say expanding Medicare coverage uh, to uh, vision, hearing, and dental issues, again, hugely popular. So it's not as if uh, the particulars of the Build Back Better bill uh, displease people. They don't. Um, and, and a lot of the support is across the board, including uh, either a majority or plurality of Republicans. But for a variety of reasons, the Democrats haven't really made the case very well uh, uh, for that bill, partly because, again, it encompasses so much that uh, they haven't really singled out this or that. And so it's easy for its critics uh, to say, look, it costs this much. And then, you know, it, then it becomes simply an issue of cost. Now, I want to make a further point, which I wrote about today and which will shortly go up on the American Prospect website. That is, um, inflation is a real problem right now. There's no, mm -hmm. there's no denying it. The price of gas, uh, the price of housing has been a problem for years. Uh, and uh, the price of some other staples uh, have, uh, have really gone up. What the Democrats need to do in marketing uh, this bill is point out how it really reduces uh, millions and millions of Americans' expenses uh, on some crucial issues, on, uh, on childcare, on prescription drugs, for which the government for the first time 
we'll be able to negotiate to bring prices down on a number of drugs. I wish it was a larger number of drugs, but at least it's a start. Um, for seniors, medical coverage, it brings down, you know, uh, expenses in, in some of the areas of the economy where inflation has been crazy for decades. Um, the drug prices, childcare, housing, because uh, there's a major housing component to build affordable housing in the bill as well. Uh, so, so I think that's an important point. Once, you know, assuming they get most of this through, uh, then I think it becomes easier to, to demonstrate what they're doing, and the faster they can roll this out, the better. Right. Um, and as you mentioned, they did finally, I think, scared by the results they saw on Tuesday, they like hightailed it and finally got the bill on the infrastructure passed by the end of last week. It's a great bill, $1.2 trillion. It's going to be addressing roads and bridges and all kinds of good stuff. Can uh, you talk a little bit about specifically what's in that bill? And I, I think you're right here, by the way, the Democrats have not been good about selling what's in it. I think people are confused about the content and they're so big and it covers so much. And the media is focused a lot on, you know, the problem of getting it passed as opposed to the content of what's in there. But can you talk a little bit now, what's in that infrastructure bill sure. that we should be glad to have? Sure. And, and remember, the definition of a cynic is someone who knows the price of everything and the value of nothing. <laughs> and, and, and the bill has kind of fallen into, both bills have kind of fallen into that category. So let's, let's look at the value of what's being produced. Um, it's over a hundred billion new spending on roads, uh, bridges, the decaying elements of what Americans think of as the infrastructure. Really, the most major outlay uh, to improve how Americans get around since uh, Eisenhower put through the interstate highway system in the 1950s. So, in many ways, we have a 1950s infrastructure, and the bill. Uh, addresses that. It, it, it devotes uh, over $60 billion to improvement of rail service, uh, which, you know, um, is, is cleaner than uh, auto emissions, uh, is something we can rely upon at this moment of supply chain gridlock a little more than trucking, since there is, since uh, there's a dearth of truckers, uh, mainly because the jobs have been uh, deunionized, made casual, and it just doesn't pay very much. So you actually need to pay truckers a, a, a reasonable amount because the job in itself can be very taxing and people won't take it unless they get paid. So rail, highways, bridges, uh, extending broadband to unserved areas in the country, which are mainly rural areas. That's part of it, sort of a modeled after the old rural electrification administration of Roosevelt's presidency, which brought electric power to rural areas, it didn't have it. Um, and um, also some very important uh, elements that reflect uh, climate change. If, if mm -hmm. as we are shifting eventually to electric cars, one thing the uh, nation's gonna need is a lot of electric chargers. And you know, the bill allots a, a, a decent sum of money to put chargers along the roads and prominent places, uh, you know, because that will be as necessary and common a part of the transportation infrastructure as gas stations are today. In fact, gas stations would be a place to be converted uh, to, to that, kind of, uh, that kind of function as well. 
So uh, really a whole panoply of issues, certainly uh, uh, modernizing airports, some of which, you know, uh, look like uh, uh, bus terminals, uh, both uh, in and of themselves and compared to airports in other countries that built theirs after ours and are reasonably nice places to be, which a lot of American airports are not. Mm -hmm. So the whole panoply of transportation, of power grid, um, and of uh, things related to uh, uh, to climate change and, uh, uh, you know, that, that, that sort of thing. Yeah, that's really exciting to hear. You know, I think there's also a lot of money in there for rebuilding the water systems. I mean, yes. we've got pipes around the country that are 100 years old and they're corroding and they're breaking and um, we have bridges falling apart. Yeah, and, but, we, and we know what happens, you know, when uh, lead pipes start corroding. You get what happened in Flint, Michigan. Uh and you get uh, kids uh, being severely affected in their long-term health by drinking water um, out of those taps. And so uh, there's a lot that needs to be done. You know, this is sort of one of the penalties of the American experience. Uh, we we kind of developed, you know, the first comprehensive modern infrastructure uh, in many ways before Europe uh, and and before other regions of the world. Well, that was some time ago. And all of the nations that have followed us, uh, it, you know, it, it was bad for the people who were living there in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s, uh, as we had this brand spanking new uh, water systems and road systems and what have you. Uh, but now uh, the, uh, the the penalty is on the nation that was the first mover, and those movements were a long time ago. And so we have to, uh, you know, catch up with uh, with much of the rest of the world. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I was just out in your home state of California, uh, the state capital of Sacramento, last week, and went to the number one tourist destination there was the railroad museum. Oh yeah. I've been and, there. I've been yeah. There. <laughs> we had the absolute best tour ever. This guy was fabulous. He should be put on YouTube, but as he tells the story of the United States building the railroad, now you're talking about mid 19th century here, yeah. but uh, you know, it was a tale of great entrepreneurship, great courage, great innovation, a little bit of corruption on the side, <laughs> a little bit agreed by the corporation, lots of jobs for people. I mean, trying to bring in people from Ireland and China to to build it. But uh, to me, it's like it represents the best of America and some of the shadow side. But um, but they got the job done. They right. got the railroad built and you could go from coast to coast. And that railroad was instrumental to so much of what helped America become the world's leading country. But, you know, as you mentioned, that's quite a while ago. Yeah. And they were, look, I mean, in, in, on the side of, you know, the innovators, I mean, the, the railroad owners at that time were the equivalent of, you know, we have the pioneering gazillionaires of, uh, of social media and the internet and the digital economy today of the Steve Jobs, uh, Bill Gates, Mark Zuckerberg, uh, category. And, you know, they had uh, the Harrimans and the Huntingtons and the Crockers and the Stanfords who became the wealthiest and most dominant figures, not only at that point in the nation's economy, but in the nation's politics. So, yeah, I mean, we, we now have that with our 
internet and digital world that those you know the those are the people who are the wealthiest and and who dominate but you know we still need um and need even more uh the preservation of what was built so long ago because uh, we still need to get around uh and uh you know, uh, Elon Musk can uh, put out all these electric cars, but unless the government provides chargers, they ain't going to go anywhere. So, you know, there's really a need to uh, update the infrastructure, uh, you know, uh, now that we've created. Each generation in this country seems to create a super rich class of people who own the new stuff uh, and have built the new stuff. Uh, but, we, we, you know, they benefited from public expenditures then. There would have been no transcontinental railroad had the government not essentially funded it. And, uh, you know, we, we need, you know, in the infrastructure bill and the Build Back Better bill, we need that kind of funding now. Right, exactly. And, you know, it's the kind of stuff even the Republicans understood. This is what government is needed to do. Yes, government they understood it. Yes. Yeah, yes. Well, it was passed in a bipartisan way in the Senate and the House. So that's a good thing. Uh, but uh, obviously driven by the Democrats. But we have to have the roads working, the bridges working, the Internet working, the railroads working so that people can move goods and services, move themselves yeah. around the country. And uh, it is what helped make America great. And, you know, this it's we're long overdue uh, at getting this major investment to shore it up. I don't want any more bridges falling apart in any American city. It's just not acceptable. <laughs> so, but now I'm remembering Harold, you wrote a s story in the prospect, which I thought was one of the best things you ever wrote advice to the Biden administration coming in saying, you've got to get these things online. I mean, and when Obama came in, they tried to get a lot done past big bills, but they, you know, the shovel ready thing, it was too slow to yeah. get out the docket. And it was also, they were shy about saying, this is what we've accomplished. They needed to get out and sell more. How fast do you think this infrastructure bill will be implemented so that people can see you know, the, the construction is happening. The airports are getting better. How long are we going to have to wait? And what do you think the Democrats are going to do about selling the goods that they just passed? Well, that's a challenge. And it's a challenge because most of this stuff is, is you know, is falls under the heading of, of the latter-day latter equivalent of Rome, which was not built in a day. <laughs> right. Uh, you know, it, uh, Roosevelt confronted a, a sort of similar conundrum. Uh, when he took office, uh, he persuaded Congress to pass a record amount of uh, funds for that time on public works. But they, they, most, most of it was to, devoted to, you know, really major time-consuming uh, projects, the Hoover Dam, the Bonneville Dam, the Tennessee Valley Authority dams and, and, and reservoirs. And um, some of the aircraft carriers that were, uh, America uh, won the Battle of Midway with and turned the tide of the World War II in the Pacific. Major stuff. It's major stuff takes time. And Roosevelt had one aide named Harry Hopkins who came to him and said, look, you know, the Depression is still absolutely awful, and we've got a lot of people who may starve to death this winter. Um, we need to set up a, a jobs program that works faster than these, these big projects. 
on, on, on at that point, roads, um, airports, which meant paving, runways, things like that, relatively simple tasks, pick and shovel tasks. And Russell said, that's, not a, that, that's a very good idea. I'm going to take some money that we set aside for these big projects and give it to uh, give it to you, Harry. Um, and in a nation of about 125 million people, Hopkins was able to put uh, about 4 million people to work in two months. That would be the equivalent of 12 million people today. Whoa. It was pick and shovel work, though. It was real work, but mm-hmm. it was easy to, you know, to gear up. It's a little harder today. We don't use picks and shovels uh, as nearly as much, but we certainly can start things. We can make clear who supported it and, you know, whose support is responsible for uh, for their existence. And there ha- that has to be a real emphasis. Some of the Build Back Better bill can be started up much more quickly, certainly on drug prices and on the drug ceiling. You know, I mean, that, that really requires uh, no construction. Um, just the government doing things. The government, uh, the child credit is already up and running. It, it, it'll be extended, not enough, but it'll be extended in the Build Back Better bill. Um, so actually, I think there are particulars uh, in that bill and, and certainly um, the provision that uh, uh, funds childcare if, if a family has to spend more than 7% of its income on it. Um, you know, some of that, that stuff can, can snap to right away and the Democrats mm-hmm. need to focus on that and moving it, <clears throat> moving it quickly. Because mm-hmm. if it's not moved quickly, it's not really visible to the public. Right. If they don't do it quickly, it's not going to matter for the elections next year. So they, I really hope, uh, I hope they can pass some version of the Build Back Better bill. And I actually think that could help them, um, you know, because I'm concerned about this infrastructure bill. It's a fabulous bill. I'm very excited about it. But I am concerned that they're coming in. It's going to take a while to ramp up. And they're coming in saying, oh, we're going to create all these millions of new jobs at a time when there's a tight labor market and a lot of employers are having trouble finding workers. Are you concerned at all about them being able to find the workers for these millions of new jobs on the infrastructure? Well, you know, part of that is with the situation with truckers that I talked about earlier. Part of that is making sure these jobs actually pay a decent wage. Uh, federally funded uh, construction is covered under something called the Davis-Bacon Act, which actually dates back to the Herbert Hoover administration. And that stipulates that the prevailing wage, which usually means the highest union construction wage in a given region, is the raise is the wage that will be paid on this project? That's very important at at a time, as you just said, Eleanor. At a time when uh, labor markets are tightening up, and when there is a shortage of construction workers. If you want to address a shortage of construction workers, you pay jobs with decent pay and benefits. I think that'll help you address that uh, that shortage. Yeah, I think the pay is good, and also I think. Training more people for these jobs. I, I don't know. I, last time I looked, I think it was something like only 12% of the jobs were 
in construction were for women. Uh, my daughter was one of them for a while. But, you know, the things that she ran into, I think we've just got to make it more acceptable, make it more welcoming, provide the training for more women, more people of color to kind of get in and get those good paying jobs. So I, you know, if I hope it's combined. And that's where I think this Build Back Better bill, which has, as you mentioned, the child care support um, and paid family leave is now back in it, that it it'll, it could free up women to be in the labor force. Now, some of those women might want to go directly into construction if they're excited about the opportunity and the money. Uh, and some of them could maybe take over jobs that men are in now and the men are then freed up to go into construction, which might be more pay than what they're making right now. So I think in terms of selling the bill, they have to stop talking about build back better as a safety net. Right. They have to talk about it as the second part of our economic package to make sure we have the labor force there to be able to do the work that people have jobs and they're able to work. Employers have workers and the country is moving at full speed again. Absolutely. I mean, it frees uh, uh, caregivers for children, uh, both mothers and fathers, depending mm -hmm. on who's the caregiver or both being caregivers, uh, it, it frees them up uh, to do more work. Uh, it, it creates conditions in which a lot of that work can be more remunerative than it is now. So yes, it's an economic develop. It's an economic development policy. Of course, it's an also an economic development policy because high quality childcare and universal pre-K uh, is really important in, uh, you know, shaping uh, children's future lives. And so in many ways, it's an across-the-board economic development program. And as I said earlier, it's also one that uh, ho holds down uh, the cost of living in some of the most uh, inflationary sectors of the economy. Right. Well, we just have a couple of minutes left, and I'm wondering, I really want to hear what do you think the Democrats need to do to keep control of the House and Senate? I mean, they're, can everybody's wringing their hands, particularly after the results from last week's election, that the Democrats are going to lose their majorities in the House and the Senate. What do you advise the Democrats to do so that they can keep majority control in the House and Senate next year? Well, uh, first of all, all of the above discussion is, is part of the advice. I think the other another key component is passing uh, the Voting Rights Act, which requires a couple of uh, Democratic, uh, or, or maybe Democratic in name only, senators uh, in the Senate, uh, Joe Manchin and uh, Kristen Sinema, uh, to uh, understand that the right to vote is a little more fundamental uh, than the Senate filibuster. And uh, at least for this one issue, uh, it would behoove them, I hate that word, behoove, uh, but it's fun to say, behoove them to uh, uh, vote to suspend the filibuster at least on that one issue, because with Republican uh, attacks on, on, uh, for trying to suppress the vote, on gerrymandering, on uh, the, giving the legislatures in some states the capacity to overrule the electorate, um, you know, it, it's not just the Democrats, but it's lowercase d democracy that needs that bill to pass. Absolutely. And, you know, we've seen literally scores of these bills being passed by 
Republicans across the country to suppress the vote, as you say, give the legislature the authority to overrule what the voters decide in election. Uh, and I'm really nervous about what that means for our country overall and specifically for the elections next year. Did we see any of that in operation this year or is it it hasn't really hit its full force yet? Well, Democrats were in control in New Jersey and Virginia, so none, there was no such legislation that, that, that got through. Uh, but, uh, you know, uh, in states where elections were not held this year, which is the other 48 states, those states run by Republicans have uh, enacted bills doing just that. And so it does pose a real peril for 2022 uh, unless... Uh, you know, the Democrats can get rid of the filibuster for at least that one vote to pass the Voting Rights Act. Yeah, well, I'm uh, excited that we've passed the infrastructure bill that we're going to stop the roads and bridges from falling apart. We're going to improve and modernize our airports. Uh, We're going to help the railroads I mean, more money for Amtrak in this bill than the past 50 years combined. We have had so much deferred maintenance and care. I'm really thrilled with that. And I'm excited to hear you think that they're going to pass the Build Back Better bill next week. So let's keep an eye on that. And hopefully we'll have you back to talk about the success of why and how that got passed and what that means for the American voters. (laughs) Happy to do it and happier still if it does pass. What I said about next week refers to the House. It does not yet. The House. Yes. One step at a time. time. That's all the time we have. Harold Morrison, thank you so much for being with us today and, and for all your brilliant analysis. A pleasure to be here, Eleanor. Listeners, stay tuned for our next guest. Our next guest is Libby Roderick, the director of the Difficult Dialogues Initiative, associate director of the Faculty Development Center at the University of Alaska Anchorage, and co-founder of the Difficult Dialogues National Resource Center. Libby is also an internationally recognized award-winning singer-songwriter, recording artist, and activist whose music has been featured on CNN, CBS, and around the world. We met through a Yale Women Gathering and have been friends ever since. Libby Roderick, welcome to All Together Now. Thanks. Great to be here. So uh, I wanted to talk to you because you've done this work about how we can improve our civil discourse. And it's obvious to everybody now that our discourse is very uncivil, and some people say we're on the verge of another civil war. Uh, why do you think that is, and what do you think we can do about it? Well, I think there are a lot of reasons. I mean, I, if I'm speaking, I assume, to a U.S. audience, uh, we have to remind ourselves that we have had similar times in our history before. Um, there have been times when people in Congress have threatened each other's bodily lives and, you know, brought guns and so forth and so on. So this isn't the first time we've seen this. And of course, we have had a civil war. But um, so it's not the first time. And there's something somewhat inherent in our 
society to be opinionated, to be very vocal, to be very um, divided on a lot of things, particularly, I'd say, issues of race, which have raised their ugly heads again in many ways now. Mm -hmm. So there's that. But I do think, as we all probably recognize, that we're in an entirely different universe now because of the relatively recent developments of technology. Mm -hmm. That um, I think that's one of the main reasons it's pushed things to the place where they are, which is that now you can have a president who tweets something um, uncivil uh, to the entire world from his bedroom in the middle of the night, if he chooses to do that. And so the impacts of technology, and, and many people know this, right, where we're being siloed, where algorithms are pushing us into our own little echo chambers, where misinformation and disinformation comes at us from every source, whether it's the Russians, whether it's other people with political goals, whether it's commercial interests, you know, what have you. Mm -hmm. um, and it's easier, of course, to be reactive when all you have to do is write a comment on a Facebook feed and you never see the person to whom you're speaking and so on and so on and so on. So at least personally, I think part of it, of course, a large part of it is technology that we're now in this kind of unregulated uh, frontier mm -hmm. uh, in which our legal system has not caught up, in my opinion. We're way behind the curve of having put in place certain kinds of uh, monitoring, certain kinds of regulations, certain kinds of reasonable borders on some of the social media, and it's kind of out of the bag now, and we're trying to get it back in, and that's mm -hmm. difficult. I also think that globally, and partly that's due to the fact that we're now interconnected in the ways we are so that we know what's happening in other places. Um, and uh, well, my life has centered around the climate emergency, uh, to be frank. Um, I'm born and raised in Alaska. We can talk more about that if you like. Mm -hmm. But I do think things are literally heating up mm -hmm. globally. We are reaching a place where resource limitation is um, really spiking. And that's putting pressures on us in ways that a lot of us aren't consciously making the link. Um, but I think the anxiety level, the upheaval, the uncertainty level, now we have the virus, right? Um, I think people are so terribly uncertain. And when people are uncertain, they tend to be uncivil. <laughs> when people get stressed out, we're not at our best, uh, to put it euphemistically. And we're seeing a lot of that as well. I think when people are uncertain, and certainly when they're stressed, they... You see that stress behavior, and it's not pretty. Um, no, it's right. So, and we've got many a lot. Of us, I mean, even people we know and love, even sometimes ourselves, right, uh, react in ways that we might not when we were in more secure times. Right, exactly. Yeah. Well, um, gosh, I'm tempted now. I want to talk about the climate, but I also want to talk about your civil discourse, but uh, let's do a little more in the civil discourse, and then I want to go into the climate, and they're obviously very connected. Um, so first of all, climate is one of the issues that people are very divided about, and we have people who understand the threat to our climate, the threat to our survival, and then we have those who deny that there is climate change even, or deny that it's any kind of serious threat. So how do you talk to each other when some people are based in reality and others are based in fantasy and misinformation land? Right. Well, I, um, if we're, if, I'll use climate as the example that I mean, it applies to many other contexts. Um, I really appreciate the work by the 
climate scientist and evangelical Christian, Catherine Hayhoe. You may be familiar with her. She um, was working as a professor in one of the universities in Texas, and she's now, I believe, become the climate scientist for the Nature Conservancy, if I'm right. But as an evangelical Christian and a climate scientist, she has been kind of required to develop um, some intelligence around how we do just what you talked about. And mm -hmm. I also recently hosted uh, on uh, a program that I sponsor as part of the Difficult Dialogues Initiative, a presentation by a fellow named Justin Lee, who is also an evangelical Christian, and he's gay. And so similarly, he has been pushed to really work through and figure out how is it that we reach for people with whom we disagree um, because of his dual standing, right? Um, and so I really recommend to people that there's a TED Talk by Catherine Hayhoe. I think it's called How to Talk About Climate or Talking About Climate is the Most Important Thing We Can Do. And, and what she talks about really is a three-part process. And now I'm, I'm getting kind of individual here. How do we talk to other people on an individual level? Good. Um, and the first part has to do with realizing that if your goal in talking to other people is to actually potentially impact them, change their minds, persuade them, shift them, any sort of goal like that, um, then we have to get real about it. Uh, the way I always say is we unfortunately have to be the grown-ups um, in the room and nobody really wants to. Um, but And that is to say that if you start from where you are and your own value system and what you believe, you're gonna lose by definition. They're mm -hmm. not there. That's why you're having to reach for them, right? They, they have different value system. They're starting from a different place. They have different beliefs. So what we usually do is we come at people with our own value system and say, here's what I think. Why don't you see it, right? Mm -hmm. And oddly, you know, uh, they don't see it, right? And, and they don't want to see it and they don't want you to lecture at them and they don't want you to yell at them and they don't want you to call them stupid and ignorant and demonic or all the different things we do to each other these days. Weirdly right. enough, that doesn't work. <laughs> well, and not only do people say, here's what I think, people say, here's what I know to be true. <laughs> yeah. And if you it, don't it's not see a conversation. It, right. Right. <laughs> so her suggestion is pretty basic, which is try to find a shared value mm -hmm. that you start with. Or for that matter, start in their values. And if you look out there on the internet, you can probably find there are examples of, for example, typical conservative values. If people identify politically as conservative, they hold mm -hmm. different values mm -hmm. than people who identify, say, as progressives. Mm -hmm. You know, they may they may uh, want to defer to authority. They may value um, a purity, a tradition. Um, you know, keeping the traditional family together mm -hmm. uh, and so forth, right? And if you look at the common lists of progressive values, you find different things. We may value equity, you know, we may value justice. We may, those may be where we start, right? But her suggestion is to try to find something in common that's honest as the beginning of those conversations to connect with the other peer person. So they have a reason to even stay in the conversation. One of the, I worked some with doctors and contact tracers here in Alaska about how do you talk to people who don't think they should wear masks, <laughs> right? Yeah. And, and was trying to use Hayhoe's process, which is essentially finding shared values to start with that are as honest as you can make them, telling some personal stories, why it matters to you personally, 
there's overwhelming evidence that data doesn't work. Right. Right? Wish it did, but it doesn't. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if you actually want to be effective, as opposed to just being right, um, then you try to find a personal story, uh, speaking from the heart. Uh, lots of research has shown that when people change their minds, it's because people tell them a story that hits them in the heart. Mm-hmm. People have gone door to door on issues like immigration or LGBTQ rights or all these, you know, sensitive political issues. And when they tell their own story about it, people are right there listening. And mm-hmm. they have demonstrated that it often has a long term impact on how people vote. Wow. As opposed to just to come and tell them what they should think or here's the data, right, which most people at this point just move away. So her first suggestion is finding some shared values. The second piece is to find some personal story, why it matters to you. And the third suggestion is to try to find some shared solution that both folks might get behind, right? And, you know, she talks about working with the oil industry executives sometimes, even in Texas, and starting with the fact that she appreciates what petroleum fossil fuels have brought us. I think we have to get real. Even heavy progressives fly around a lot, right? Mm -hmm. When I go camping in backcountry, most of my gear is made out of petroleum products, Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, a lot of these things have brought us, you know, some of our medical breakthroughs are, are contingent on some of that stuff. And so she starts there saying, I really want to honor the benefits of what this has brought to me and to many people I know and to many people in the world. And that's honest. She means it. Right. And mm-hmm. then the second piece has to do with a personal piece of the story. And I can't remember what it is in her case, but I think it is about possibly, you know, doing the work she's done as a scientist and beginning to really discover the horrific impacts that fossil fuels are now having on the possibility of a life on earth, right? Mm -hmm. And the third part she moves to is the fact that renewable energy is taking over as a a bringing jobs to Texas. Mm -hmm. And And what she's doing is they share the value of wanting a robust economy. And she's taking them through this process where she can then say, well, you know, one way of continuing to have a robust economy is to shifting our investments into renewables. And it really is bringing jobs into Texas. And who doesn't want that? And they want that too, right? Mm -hmm. And I was sort of doing a similar thing around the mask issue, Mm -hmm. of really wanting a robust economy, which all of us do, I think. Mm-hmm. And the fact that there are many people I personally know and businesses I know who really want us to get back to normal in an economy but cannot do it because the virus, at least in Alaska, is going through the roof because people refuse to do mask mandate. Um, and then right. the third part is to say, and so the cheapest way I can think of to get us back on track for a robust, healthy economy where my people can keep their jobs and yours can too, and our businesses stay afloat, right, is to wear a mask, it doesn't cost anything. Um, and so that's, and I will say, and that's my personal choice because in Alaska, if you, the, the real issue, and she talks about this a lot, the resistance to say climate change is not that people don't get that it's happening. The data shows that they do. Even people on the right, by and large, acknowledge that it is occurring. What they're resisting is the implications of admitting that because they think it means government regulation, right? And they mm-hmm. have a very staunch value for reasons I don't fully understand <laughs> against um, having the government, quote unquote, tell them what to do. And so she's trying to wend her way through uh, getting people to move on the issue without invoking the implication that they're resisting. Anyway, I, I'll stop. There's a lot here. 
Yeah, well, that's fabulous. I, uh, I'm so excited to learn about that, and I look forward to watching that TED Talk. Um, so you're working quite a bit on these difficult dialogues. Uh, you've got this initiative going. Talk a little bit about that difficult dialogues initiative. Is this mask conversation, is that part of what you're doing now with that difficult dialogues initiative? The Difficult Dialogues Initiative, I'm the director of that. It's housed at the University of Alaska Anchorage, but it was funded originally by the Ford Foundation way back in 2006. After 9-11, they noticed that we were having these big schisms on our campuses, our, in our universities, um, particularly around religion and race and the intolerance that really flared up after 9-11. So they funded a bunch of projects. Ours was one of them. And um, my particular project focuses on helping faculty at university campuses around the U.S. and in South Africa um, to get better at introducing controversial topics pro proactively into the classroom and having them go well so their students can actually engage with one another uh, with respect around very difficult topics. Um, we went on, and there's actually multiple parts to it. We also are trying to midwife in traditional indigenous ways of teaching and learning into higher education because our traditional uh, Alaska Native cultures and other indigenous nations are brilliant at um, ways to um, engage with people with whom you disagree and maintain the re relationship and the respect uh, amongst the peoples. They've had mm -hmm. to get these things honed over 10,000 years. Right. You know, and um, they're phenomenal, uh, not just at that, but at, at most things, in my opinion. And so we're trying to midwife those ways of teaching and learning into our educational systems. There's also a component that helps faculty talk to faculty about toxic behavior in their own ranks um, and, and more. Um, yeah, just on that, by the on way. On that, there is a difficult dialogue national resource center, which when the Ford fund funding dried up, a bunch of us who'd gotten these kinds of grants banded together. We formed a nonprofit to help uh, build that skill level for folks in higher ed across the U.S. And is that the difficult dialogues national resource center? That's right. Fantastic. By the way, I'm glad you're addressing the toxicity among faculty. I, I remember Henry Kissinger once said everything he needed to know about war and international relations, he learned at the Harvard Faculty Club. <laughs> Indeed. Indeed. Well, let's, Smart, opinionated people. Yes, exactly. Who know they're right. <laughs> yeah. um, let's talk a little about that. Uh, indigenous ways of teaching and learning. I mean, you've been involved with helping to put together a whole, it's kind of like a book on that called Stop Talking Indigenous Ways of Teaching and Learning. You're right, you know, the indigenous were in these communities and they had to get along. They, you know, it wasn't like they could fly off to Miami. They were kind of no. stuck together. What have you learned from the indigenous about how we can get along better? Well, let me just say I'm born and raised in Alaska. We have seven major indigenous nations here who have never been removed from their traditional lands. So as they would say, they have been here since time immemorial. And what it means is they have this profound connection to place, to the lands, waters, and creatures around them, to their communities, to their elders, to their ancestors. Um, they are in what they would call, uh, well, they are real human beings, as most indigenous uh, name titles mean that. Um, and by that, they mean they're in right relationship with life, um, with themselves, with each other, and with their 
living systems around them. And the I've been privileged uh, and f- super lucky. Uh, t- my life has been informed and transformed by indigenous knowledge and wisdom. And in my opinion, they need to be on the leading edge. Everybody in the world needs to be listening to them now, particularly now that we're on the precipice of maybe not going forward as a species. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and uh, the indigenous elders up here talk about the fact that we are living in the reverse society. Where the we have almost society? everything upside down and backwards. <laughs> that what matters most we consider least, mm-hmm. right? Our elders, our children, the living world, the waters and creatures and lands and so forth, our future, our past, right? Um, that modern society is about profit making uh, uh, by and large, and indigenous nations uh, privilege life over profit. Um, so, I consider them to be the teachers, the global teachers. Um, And of course, it's a direct challenge to where we currently are with capitalism globally. Mm -hmm. Um, We pretty much turn everything into a commodity and indigenous cultures pretty much refuse to do that. Um, And and one of the things I was listening to an elder not too long ago who was asked, what's the most important thing to do right now? And I was really curious what he would say. He said, you need to you need to get more women leading. That really? In, yeah. In an indigenous context, gender balance is critical. Uh, most of the most important decisions are made by grandmothers mm-hmm. uh, because they have been life supporting uh, for their entire lives and can think about the whole, including, of course, men and boys and so on. It's not a gender competition it's a it's putting things into right relationship um so the fact that we haven't even figured out how to have gender balance in leadership astonishes mm-hmm. any indigenous elders and apparently the indigenous told that to the founding fathers when they were putting the united states together they said you need to yeah. have everybody in the circle in fact the Confe- confederacy of the iroquois was the model for the united states where you had they had different tribes in one confederacy and the founding fathers and mothers had the differing states in the United States. So that was kind of the model. But one of the things the native people said was you need to have everybody in the circle. You can't exclude yeah. people. It'll lead to trouble. And of course they excluded the African-Americans. Yeah, kind they kind of missed that cue. Yeah. yeah excluded the women. And it cue. took, decades of you know centuries of struggle to try and get people back you know get people into the circle and into right relationships so that's really fascinating uh so what do you think um are there specific things that come you know you're so aware of this climate emergency you're so attuned to and have been working with this indigenous wisdom um what more like what I live here in Washington, D.C., so we'd never hear anything about indigenous wisdom here. <laughs> uh, what more like what would you say if you were talking to Joe Biden and the uh, the political leaders in D.C., what would you say they should be doing right now about the climate emergency? Um, from my standpoint, we should be doing everything possible right now. We should be, as they say, running like the buffalo. Um, we need to move on every front we possibly can. People, I don't think, really understand where we are in the trajectory. Mm-hmm. We're at we're at midnight. We, we need to move now on every front. And from my standpoint, that means 
um, well, I mean, Joe Biden is he's kind of hamstrung in some ways, given the political situation right. in which he finds himself. But the rest right. of us can continue to join up. There's a million organizations that are moving as fast as they can, whether it's 350.org or the Indigenous Environmental Network or the Sunrise Movement for Young People or, you know, the list goes on. Climate, um, the, the uh, Citizen Climate Lobby, there's a ton of them. And the first thing I say to people is join a group. Don't try to just recycle your light bulbs, right? That's not going to be sufficient, although certainly do try to reduce your own carbon footprint. But we need to be collectively moving right now. We need to be electing leaders who get the climate emergency and don't mess around here. We, We need to be putting pressure. In my opinion, I'm doing some work to try to put pressure on billionaires. Elon Musk was just, somebody tweeted, you know, why don't you give $6 billion to end hunger? And he tweeted back, well, if you can show me a plan that it would matter, I'll do it. And I just sent, we were just in communication with somebody about Bill McKibben. No, we should be saying, he makes $36 billion a day. Mm -hmm. He doesn't need it. They should be pressured to put $36 billion a day into the climate crisis to help developing nations skip over the old energy bases and go to the renewables, to help us reforest agricultural lands that are not needed so that they become carbon sinks to help us get breakthroughs in battery power to establish electric cars rather than the current ones we have whatever right we need to be doing everything we can i don't know if people get that but the Mm -hmm. moment truly is now so join up yes exactly right and Uh, You know, you've done such a marvelous job in Alaska with the indigenous who have you say have just kind of been in place. They never got sent off uh, thousands of miles away like so many of the tribes um, in the rest of North America here. But um, how do you see the indigenous cultures and people working with us? You know, say we join a group. You've built those relationships there. What can we do to learn from the indigenous cultures and peoples to move us towards a better chance of survival? Yeah. Well, uh, as is always true when we look at issues around racism and stuff, learn. For starters, there's tons of stuff out there. There's amazing indigenous writing going on, amazing indigenous thinkers and leaders. There's groups like Bioneers every year that sponsors, you know, folks who are sharing their knowledge and wisdom. Um, You can um, look into your own area. Uh, Indigenous peoples are not gone. They're here um, everywhere. (laughs) And find out what you can about where you are. But particularly, I think, given the internet and given where we are in this um, trajectory and how quickly we really do need to shift our consciousness as well as our actions, um, I I would just start learning. And and again, the internet makes the world uh, available to, to everybody to start reading and and, uh, listening to indigenous leaders through webinars, right? Through uh, books, through articles, there's tons of stuff out there. Yeah, excellent. You need to listen. Fantastic. Well, I wanna have you come back. I think we need to do a full hour. I wanna have you come back and we wanna do a full hour about the climate and about indigenous wisdom. Uh, We just have one minute here. And I I did want to touch on music has been such a big part of your life. You're such a gifted songwriter, singer. How do you see music helping us heal in these really dangerous and scary times? 
Well, in one minute, music is the language of the emotions. And let's face it, you know, we're, there's a lot of emotion and psychology to all this. This isn't just about politics, isn't just about politics. It's about our hearts, our minds, our, our, how we feel about things, whether we get stuck in despair, whether we get stuck in fear, whether we are able to move, you know, where we find joy. It's a way of connecting at that deeper level with our humanity and with other people. Um, so music and the arts can really help us find solidarity, find solace. Um, you know, feed the heart. Fantastic. I want you back soon and I want you to play us a song when you come back <laughs> for today. Okay, that's all the time we have for today. Libby Roderick, thank you so much for being with us and for all your important work. My pleasure. Thanks for your work too.